0: This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our real-time history videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series, 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45, on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash real-time history podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo from the Great War Channel podcast, and today I have a guest that you might have already known from our tank videos that we did last summer. This is David Willey. David, can you say hi to everybody and maybe
1: tell a bit more about yourself for the people who haven't seen our tank episodes? Yeah, certainly. Um, As you say, my name is David Willey. I'm the curator at the Tank Museum in Bovington, which is down in the southwest of england it's where the british army came to train with tanks in world war one it's been an army base ever since and it's still where the british army trains with tanks today so they set up a teaching collection and that's become the museum collection we still have a teaching remit for the modern army so we still uh, have soldiers around the place but we're also a very much a Public-facing visitor attraction nowadays. So um, we have lots of members of the public in fantastic collection, over 300 vehicles, and a superb collection of First World War tanks.
0: We highly recommend that you visit the Tank Museum. It's a great collection, not just about World War One tanks, but also about the general, I would say, progress and history of tank evolution, basically, starting from Little Willy, the first tank ever built, basically until well, well until the 90s actually i think and there is if you're interested in visiting us there is one special occasion this summer um commemorating the battle of amyong in august where we will actually be at the tank museum and david why don't you tell us a bit more about the Amiens event to get people excited so that they visit us there
1: Yeah, Okay. So in partnership with your good selves, on the 8th and 9th of August, we're going to be hosting an event here at the museum where we're going to put displays on outside. So you will be driving some of our replica First World War vehicles. We've got a nice A7V and a Mark IV replica First World War British tank. We'll also be inviting down some other museum collections um, to see what they can bring to help show off on that particular Um, two-day event and we're probably going to be getting hold of a Renault tank an FT-17 that's just being restored that will be coming along and showing off as well fingers crossed everything goes to plan so the idea is why we've particularly chosen this event is in Britain there is a bit of a tendency we look at 1918 as if somehow um, the war staggers to an end and in Britain we tend to go for November the 11th the armistice and that for us is our national day of remembrance and you may well have seen all the images we have the ceremony at the cenotaph what i think we're trying to do with the Amiens event is draw attention to the fact of actually the defeat of the german army which so often gets overlooked and no doubt throughout the course of the year you'll be looking at how different um, countries look at the end of the war, but also how propaganda, historical um, accident, all sorts of things have, have perhaps changed our view. And certainly in Britain, we have an issue about the Battle of Amiens that very few people know about it. The politics at the time were directing the press away from the Western Front because we knew in Britain 1918 was going to be a tough year um, because of all the German armies coming back from uh, the Russian front. We had the big attack that takes place earlier in the year. There's a falling out between Hague and Lloyd George. There's all sorts of things going on that means that even in 1918, we didn't know enough in Britain itself about the success of the Battle of Amiens for the British Army. And subsequently, through things such as Nazi propaganda, the stab in the back theory for the German army, that battle has kind of been overlooked. So one of the big reasons we're trying to draw attention to it is to redress that balance and show a period of World War One that so easily gets overlooked. We race on to November of 1918. Then it's all about, understandably, loss, remembrance, thinking about the cost of the war what we're trying to do is actually show a point in that war that very easily gets overlooked
0: yeah that's uh, certainly a certainly very interesting and important point that's why we also wanted to be on board i mean it's cool to see um some tank replicas and uh, what well, to see the tanks in the museum and everything uh up close and in person so that's already a good reason to come up but uh, generally talking about the battle of Amyang and also generally the well, the year of battles, 1918, is super fascinating. And we we're currently covering the Kaiserschlacht and um, the German offensives up until May and everything. And sometimes when you read about it, it sounds like uh, it's a completely different war. So it's uh, it completely counteracts this kind of narrative that, as you said, the war just kind of dragged on and then it suddenly ended.
1: 1918, for, for so many people, really, if you if you like your history, and I I imagine people listening to this podcast your your series on youtube it's one of these things that for so many people were some people learning afresh they're coming to this without any prejudices certainly there has been a period of historical writing that historians have been trying to change for perhaps the last 20 even 30 years very hard to get through the myths that we love to believe in europe about the first world war and perhaps see you know we're never going to be absolutely right we're always going to have our bias Yet at the same time, wouldn't it be better we get a fairer and more accurate view of what went on? And, you know, isn't it amazing? Uh, look at Europe at the moment. Look at what we talk about, fake news. Look at how we deal with some of the issues going on around the world. Isn't that you can just see reflected in this period in World War One? What do people really believe? What's the facts of what's going on? And these were all issues going on in 1918. So um, hopefully during the course of the year, you know, with your podcast, with your broadcast, some of these areas that we perhaps naively overlook or sometimes have got a misbelief. We believe the myths are not necessarily perhaps more the truth. that Those things can be teased out and we can look at anew. And certainly for us as well, there's what we've actually asked other museums in the UK to do with our Amion event is why don't you turn up with an interesting object to our event for those two days that you can explain, that you YouTubers, you know, you can talk about, you can have a look at, but for them symbolises something about that year that's different to perhaps a popular perception. You know, this idea of the, dare I say it, you know, the war, we never want to make light of it in the wrong way, but all we ever tend to get in Britain is that sense of doom and gloom about 1918 and that struggle to the end. And it's been interesting, some of the media in Britain has already picked up Um, The BBC has been criticised for saying it's almost like we lost the war. Um, Actually, think of how Europe would have been if the Kaiser had won that war. Um, Very different outcomes. So, you know, these are all some of the issues that it will be interesting to sort of see a little bit more talked about. And certainly in an age of fake news, picking apart what nowadays, you know, now looking back, hang on, we've got much better evidence for perhaps a truer picture. I never want to say we've got the right picture, you know, because everyone's version is going to be very different. New information comes to light all the time. Um, But it would be really good to see perhaps just a fairer picture get reflected. Um, I mean, I absolutely agree. So um, if
0: you're interested in coming to the Amyong event, uh, we will put a link into the description of this podcast. And of course, we will make a proper announcement video and everything on the YouTube channel. You won't be able to miss out on this event highly encourage you to come and um, now I think we should talk about some tanks what do you think about that
1: okay you're far away what would you like to know about tanks
0: okay so maybe also for the people that uh, I mean we already made a bit of an episode called uh, tanks the adolescent years but maybe you can recap a bit more uh, where was the tank corps in early 1918 like how from where did they come from september 1916 to to that point i mean it's like two years of course but uh or one and a half years but
1: where where did we where are we are now so we all know the first tank attack september 1916 the end of the Somme battles just under 50 tanks are available they're not that successful but the british commander-in-chief haig sees their potential he orders a thousand of them they have struggles as so many countries do in putting new technology together, getting it tested, getting manufacturing space. Um, Tanks are used the following year at the battle of Arras in the spring of 1917, not greatly successful, um, but they do see some role there. Um, We're still building, we're trying to build better tanks. We come up with um, the the Mark one tank is in use at the first battle the Mark IV is the tank they make the most of in World War I in Britain. They make just over a 1,000 of them. They're starting to be ready by later in the summer of 1917, um, but they're used at the Battle of Passchendaele to not great success. The Passchendaele, as we all know, the landscape, the weather, very boggy ground. Tanks just sink in the mud. And the Tank Corps is very depressed about their future because they are, you know, costly items tanks. They're taking skilled men. They're training them. They're getting them to use this new weapon system. They don't seem to be getting the effect um, that, that really this investment warrants. So the Tank Corps come up with the idea of having a raid at a place called Cambrai on the Western Front, in November of 1917 as a way of perhaps vindicating themselves before the winter sets in. Let's find a way of showing off. And that raid is built up by Haig into the idea this could be a breakthrough. They use all the tanks available in an initial assault. They used um, a very clever artillery system that we're picking up on. We're getting very good with our artillery in Britain at this stage so that there is a bombardment suddenly on the German front line without lots of pre-registration in other words lots of fire to let you know something's coming Um, they are using air power in a really imaginative way they actually call it air artillery so the planes fly over and they're actually strafing the German front lines as at dawn on 21st of November off go this massive tank fleet uh, into the attack and they cut about a three mile wide hole in the German front line. Very successful. One or two holdups on that day. It unfortunately for the British breaks down relatively quickly into attritional warfare again. And then the Germans being the Germans do a stunning counterattack that wipes out this advance that's been made. The key issue about it, though, is tanks are back on the agenda in a big way. The German reaction is hang on a second. There's no such thing now. As a quiet sector of the front line that's their nervousness to that the full potential of the tank is at last they're starting to see that and certainly the british high command not only sees it um hague's been behind the tanks but it starts disseminating throughout the rest of the arms army this new weapon has got more than just a little bit of potential It really can do something and tanks in terms of production after november before november they're pretty low down we're looking at things such as um, aeroplanes, um, guns, ammunition, transport, trains are all ahead of tanks in terms of priority of production. After Combray, that swaps around. Suddenly, tanks get moved up the agenda more. And the idea again is for 1918, in many ways, psychologically, in the West, we're waiting for the Americans to turn up. But even Petain says, The way he, he sees. What's coming? And he says, he says, look, we're going to have to hang on and wait for the Americans and the tanks and a massive tank building program is underway. And that sort of, you know, the emphasis behind those tanks for 1918 goes up the agenda. Now, at the beginning of the year, Britain and the Western allies, we know the Germans are going to be putting in their spring attack. We know they're going to be doing this massive advance um Dates are debated. We finally realise it's probably going to be about the 21st of March. It's going to be the main attack coming, um, certainly on the British sector. They start thinking, number one is what are the Germans going to be doing? Are they going to have tanks? We've got intelligence information that Germans may be building tanks. We now know, of course, Germany only builds about 20 A7B tanks in their own design. But they've captured at least 40 Mark IV tanks at Cambrai. And the Germans call them Voych Panzers or Booty Panzers. They put them back into service. They train up crews. They do some slight changes to them. But those vehicles we know might be coming at us as well. So they start for the first time. The British are now starting to think, how might we deal with tanks attacking us as opposed to the other way around? And that winter, there's an awful lot of clever ideas, dumb ideas. All sorts of things are going on where they're thinking, how might we stop tanks? And they give the problem to the tank corps. They say, look, you guys know about tanks. What are we going to do? How are we going to come up with ideas? So various things are discussed. They come up with the idea of using the current tanks in British service as a way of defending. And Ellis, the guy in charge of the tank corps, he comes up with this idea called that they come out with savage rabbits, um, which the idea is, is hide tanks in positions near the front line, wait for the German attack, then these tanks in small packets will emerge and do this idea of savage rabbit, like it's a rabbit coming out of its hole and starts going for your ankles. So they would actually attack um, from flank or side or even rear positions as the German army advanced. So the tank corps is spread out along about a 60-mile frontage. So, you know, they're spread fairly thinly. Some of the tank corps guys think this is wrong because you're losing the strength of the tanks by putting them in smaller penny packets. Um, So they're not they're not being kept all together. When the German attack comes in, those guys were probably proven to be right because we think only half of the tanks that actually were put aside waiting to do counterattacks actually get into action at all. Many of them, because of the success of the German initial advance, many of those tanks are end up being abandoned. They don't get enough supplies getting through to them. They are in uh, positions of confusion where they either attack, they're then told to retreat. We've got situations where tanks are being abandoned or set on fire by their own crews. So initially we lose an awful lot of vehicles um, during that first part of the German attack. There are one or two successes. There's occasions where the tanks prove absolutely brilliant at holding up the German advance um, to give the chance of the British soldiers to reform a line, take a position, etc. And even Ellis himself, again, as head of the tank corps, there's one particular uh, engagement where near a place called Colling Camp, where he himself personally goes ahead of what was considered the British front line to start looking for positions to rally troops to have his tanks um, patrol up and down to stop the Germans advancing and uh, again in terms of leadership you know we sometimes overlook this inspirational leadership Ellis himself says we better go and find out where the Germans are and literally him and a fellow officer are now going and looking down a village knocking on the doors of houses trying to work out how far the Germans have got to That's how chaotic the situation was during that German advance in March and early April. Um, Part of the savage rabbit attacks leads to the first ever tank-on-tank engagement. And that's later on. Yeah, so at Villers-Bretonneux, some of the the British tanks that have been spread out, we've got about a couple of Mark IV tanks, female ones, and one male Mark IV tank. So the female tanks just have machine guns. The Germans, for the first time, are using um, about three A7V tanks as part of a series of attacks around Villers-Bretonneux. And for the first time, these tanks in the Savage Rabbit role, the British ones come out of hiding, down the uh, across the other side of the field, coming towards them, at three A7Vs. Now, depending on whose accounts you read, you can either call this fight at best a draw, um, the British commander at one point, he actually seemed to think, really, the Germans had the day. But what happens is the two female tanks so the British ones are engaged by the A7Vs. They're knocked out. Um, the Mark IV tank, the, by, um, with, with the larger six-pounder guns on, then manages to come into action, disables one of the A7Vs and the other two A7Vs then sort of retreat off the battlefield At the end of the day, both sides go back onto the battlefield to recover their tanks. Um, So you could almost call it a draw. But on that very same day as well, some Whippet tanks then engage a bit later on, and they actually meet some A7Vs as well. So you're looking at, uh, for the first time, obviously, it's something that we now tend to look back on and think as tanks fighting tanks. This is the first time it happens uh, on the 24th, 25th of April at Villers-Bretonneux. That's the first proper tank-on-tank engagement. And it's one of those other areas where, for the British, what they're trying to do all the time with this new weapon is learning how to use it better, what might be successful, and they are very good at disseminating that information. For a British tank crew, as soon as you come back after an engagement, the commander, normally a second lieutenant, has to write up what happened and any suggestions he can make. And that goes back to this. So it's disseminated. Everyone can start saying, we think we're learning lessons about this. We don't want to make the same mistakes again. We don't want to find our tanks not being used to their full effect. Um, So and again, that idea of the first tanking tank engagement, obviously amazing resonance through history, um, because, you know, that's the first time. And of course, these guys who are dealing with this are making it up as they go along. This is new tactics, new actions. What do we do about it? And, of course, you know, the the sight of the A7V is quite something for the British. You know, this is quite a big vehicle, relatively fast vehicle on uh, open roads, Um Firepower we don't know about. we you know all these things they're learning as they're going along. And I mean, uh,
0: it, it has uh, forward-facing f- machine guns and um, everything. And I mean, even though the tank, the tank corps guys might be used to seeing a tank by now, most of the infantry infantry might still think it's a fairly new thing.
1: Yeah, and you've got this other big problem, of course, is where the Germans are using our captured Mark IV and later Mark V tanks against the British. Is it one of ours? Is it? Um, an enemy tank you know when do we open fire so you've got that confusion that can take place as well um, and of course again the tactics now are changing so with the german infiltration tactics you know the mist that happens to be there on the first day of their march attack this idea of Um, You've got accounts of both sides trying to find where the other enemy are on a battlefield where sometimes it's mist, sometimes it's smoke shells, sometimes it's gas shells that are cleverly brained down together to help confuse people. So the idea of who really is the enemy, hence the Germans doing the Maltese cross on the side of their vehicles, and then the British deciding to put banding red and white banding on the tops and the front horns of their vehicles so that they're more readily identified as being of the allied side and not a a british tank that's been captured and used by the germans and the germans in the same position if you're a german tank crew you're pretty nervous about being fired on by your own batteries that may well be confusing you for a british tank okay so I I, ma- I made a few mental
0: notes in your summary now. That was excellent, by the way. I love uh, listening to, uh, listening to that. Um, so the the first thing I, I was thinking about um, the the savage rabbit tactic. I mean, it's certainly something rather unusual for our mental image of World War One. I. I mean, it already hints towards the evolution away from trench warfare and everything. Um, you specifically highlighted that they want to attack from the from the flank and even from the rear. Because I would assume this was something that they already realized were the weak points of the tanks at the time. I mean, the A7V, for example, also has much stronger frontal armor than on the sides or in the rear.
1: Well, it's it's also about they were looking at the tactics, how they thought they were going to defend. Knowing the Germans with their new, you know, what have we got? Over 30 divisions coming all the way back from the Eastern Front. The British have a problem as well is they're being starved of men. There's a political issue going on between Lloyd George and Haig. Haig is fed up with, um, well, Lloyd George is fed up with Haig really in the sense that he doesn't want to supply more men because he thinks they are being wasted. After the Passchendaele battles, um, Lloyd George has lost confidence in Haig as the British commander in chief. Haig is crying out for men to help defend What for him is an extended line. They've now actually taken over 40 miles extra of the French front line. So not only is his troops being stretched, he's not being reinforced in the way that he wants to be. Um, So they think of new tactics of how they might try and slow the German military when they are going to be attacked. They know that attack's coming. The Germans are obviously under pressure to put a major attack in before the Americans start arriving in numbers that are going to affect the outcome. The Americans are turning up. They're a naive bunch. They're new. They're needing to train. Um, They are not going to be. Pershing is insisting almost on a year to get them up to speed before they can engage properly. So on the Western Front, the Allies are bracing themselves for that German attack. Now, as part of that bracing themselves, they're looking, what's the best way to defend? So they come up with this idea Of a sort of staggered defense Um, you have an outpost line which is like the trigger line for when the enemy is coming towards you you then have a line of resistance behind that where we're channeling that advancing German forces um, and by channeling them we're trying to sort of say here's where we're going to put the barbed wire here's when we're going to put the minefields here's how we're going to try and get any advancing German force into an area that then becomes the third line, which is what they call the battle zone, where it's almost like the backstop. Um, This is where we should be defeating the enemy by. Now, the problem Hayes got is he hasn't got enough men to man that defensive system in as effective a way as possible. He's looking at where can I put my tanks as to help defend. Now, there was one argument, you should put those tank forces together as an effective mobile reserve to wait to see where the German attack is being most successful and then maneuver it to where that attack is taking place the problem is you've then got the issue of maneuvering mark 4 tanks and the mark 5s are just starting to start appearing Um, you're going to have to put them on railway flats to maneuver them to wherever you think that breakthrough is and Are we actually going to be able to do that in time? So the decision is made. No, let's just spread them out. Let's let's try and do them. So and again, that phrase, Savage Rabbits, they're in small pockets to be able to come out and hopefully influence the battle um, as those German forces are coming forward. So whether it's they're waiting either till they, they get through the line of resistance or the battle zone, that then they can engage, hopefully, as they see it, ...from hidden positions, from onto the flank of advancing German columns, etc., and do the damage that way. Now, as we know from what actually happens, that works in one or two areas, but in a lot of areas, the tanks emerge. There is massive confusion because of the nature of the German attacks using these storm tactics, infiltrating all the way through... ...so that the, fantastically for the Germans, missed on the morning of the attack, confusion reigns, and then in essence, a British collapse... Um, going on and that German advance so the a number of times these tanks actually have the opportunity of doing what they were intended to do one or two places they do it brilliantly in a number of places there's some tanks driving around till they run out of petrol and then the crews end up having to take out the Lewis guns and they end up fighting um, as Lewis gun teams trying to slow the German advance or to bolster the British lines. So okay, that that
0: was one aspect, and one more thing about the flanking. Um, you already just talked about, I would call it one of the underdogs of World War One tanks, which is the Whippet tank, which
1: uh, we should, by the way, f- film an episode about when we when we visit in in summer. So one of the issues the British have been looking at there's uh the tank building program that's been going on in the background. Um, They've got by October, about 1917, there's about 700 Mark IV tanks have been delivered. Um, they've got another 500 on the production line that are due to come. You've got 1,600 new tanks ordered. This is a big production line. Um, and, and and that ability, and again, we're looking at, you know, if you look strategically at the overview, one of the reasons the Germans don't go for the A7V tank in such a way, they consider it such a cost such an engineering um problem and you know the manufacturing space time and energy would that material be better used elsewhere that's one of the reasons the germans are fairly slow off the mark they just don't rate the tank um in the way that the western allies are putting huge amounts of resource in of course by this stage of the war um the the blockade is biting on the german home front as well so the actual availability of some of the materials that are wanted much much argument going on there Now, there's about 385 whippet tanks are due to be delivered by May the 1st, um, 1918. Now, the whippet has been designed fairly early on. And the idea being is, do you have what nowadays we might call a fast or a cavalry tank? The idea behind it is a rhomboid shaped tanks can do the damage, cross the wire down allow the infantry to advance. In the back of our minds, it's been the cavalry will be the arm of exploitation. They will be going through the gap to cause the damage. That's traditionally how it's been viewed. But already they're thinking perhaps an armoured vehicle that can go faster and cause problems behind the front line as a weapon of exploitation. Along with, of course, they're looking at armoured cars and they're now bringing armoured cars in 1918 to the Western Front, Austins, Rolls Royces, etc., with the idea that if we are in a position of exploitation, the guys on horseback, great when they can get through. But if there's still a bit of barbed wire, still some machine guns left, we may need an armored vehicle to go off and do the damage. And the Whippet, there's some wonderful examples in 1918 where Whippet tanks have that opportunity and they make it up. Now, after they've, um, to look at, you know, just to put in a little bit more of a time concept, the Whippet, eight miles an hour, um, it has two Tyler engines in the front, the driver has a real problem, because basically what he's trying to do is he speeds up one of those engines to turn the track on one side around faster, and if he puts the speed up on one track, it basically will push you round the corner, um, the other track going slower. So that's how you actually drive along and steer by speeding up an engine. This is complex um, for a driver to get this right. Um, He's also got the problem that the cab space or the barbette that's behind the engine that contains Hotchkiss machine guns, um, it has two other crew members in that space, a commander and a gunner. Um, that will get very very hot very quickly inside that space um, so if you look at all the photographs of whippets driving around if they're not in combat the rear door is always left open to let air circulate um, it is not a, a what we would now call a very well ergonomically designed vehicle at the same time going at eight miles an hour twice the speed of things like the mark 4 and the mark V tank that it means it's fast so it can do the role of the cavalry at certain times by being armored it can go off and it does cause problems behind the german front line and later in the summer after the attack in the, there's an attack at hamel and then uh Amion in august a tank called musical box goes off driving around it's a whippet tank or musical box and if you read the litany of what it's able to do behind the German front line, it shoots up a railway train coming in as with German resupply troops. It drives off and knocks down a barrage balloon. An observation balloon is being used. It drives, it causes mayhem behind the front line, exactly as it was planned to do. So the Whippet's another one of those vehicles where it sees action in 1918, but perhaps its potential, uh, again, with a lot of the theorizing that's going on in in with the tank corps in 1918 they're looking at really how they're going to deal with the german army in 1919 with these massive production numbers bigger let's get together with the french and the americans we're going to make this international tank there's a whole host of other issues coming together they have to put a number of those on the back burner whilst they look after the german attack so that, that means training. Lots of other things go out the window early in the spring. By the summer, though, they're using these tanks that they already have got to great effect uh, at the Battle of Hamel um, in, uh, in the summer of uh, 1918. You've got this brilliant exercise with Monash and the, uh, in charge of the Australian troops, and he's training with General Courage of the 5th Tank Corps, um, and what they do is they do a brilliant bit of let's get to know each other, let's train with each other, let's trust each other, let's make sure everybody, we're going to put an Australian soldier in the back of most of these tanks so that they can act as liaison, um, go out, have a beer with each other. They, because of the Australians from Corps, they've got very little trust in the tanks. Now they learn to love the tanks. And at Hamel, they do an attack that goes brilliantly well very successful the australians lose very few men comparatively we only lose a few tanks they're learning from that and the tank corps as well is also learning we can do things quicker than we expected combray they thought was amazing because they managed to plan the battle get all the logistics together in a month Amion they do it in two weeks and they realize this is what's called rather boringly staff work but they understand now If we can move tanks, we can get the petrol there, we can do all these different things much, much quicker. And that's really what kicks off on the 8th and 9th of August with Amiens. We get all our tanks together, but not only do we do a successful tank attack, and it's a great breakthrough leading to the German army to start retreating, but they can very quickly say, actually, we're bogging down here. Let's manoeuvre our tanks quickly to another sector, And carry on an attack elsewhere. So that sense of being much more flexible in how they're using the equipment they've got, they're not doing quite the set-piece battle in the same way. They're being able to manoeuvre that. And again, these are things that I think um, it even surprises the British at how quickly this is going on. And the problem, of course, for historians and even the British Army and certainly the press at the time is the success of Amiens is almost being overlooked because of other political issues. But also it's happening so fast that even the German journalists can't keep up with where that fighting is going on that day. What's going on? The confusion, the fact that no one quite knows what's going on all the time. Are the Germans still there after all this static warfare, this sudden breakout warfare is something very, very new. And again, you know, Haig has prefigured this. He's seen some of this coming. He's already been going back to the um, to Lloyd George in London and the war office saying, listen, we're going to need more automobiles. We're going to need those armoured cars because we may well be getting back to 1914 again a sense of mobile warfare. And the technology's moved on. It's not just a man on a horse. They're still very valid. But maybe it might be guys in an armoured car or a truck or with some tanks that actually can exploit this. So that sense, there is no two ways about it. It's confusing periods for all the parties in the sense of how, trying to follow how the battle has actually developed. We don't have that nice, all oh, you know, let's tidy everything up and we'll reset again, ready for the following month. It doesn't happen that way. It's literally within a day or two, they're being able to change around and use their new tactics. And again, that idea, we often talk about Combray, it's, it's kind of trying to use those all on tactics. Now they're brilliantly using things such as aeroplanes, squadrons of aeroplanes are actually allocated to certain tank battalions so they know how each other are working. The tanks are being signalled by the aeroplanes. Aeroplanes are dropping messages to the tanks. You know, this level of cooperation is happening remarkably well in from August onwards and in the some of the September battles that is leading to that German retreat. Um, and that's one of the other things, you know, we talked about earlier about why that importance of Amiens Look, that is a defeat of the German army in the field, still respected in the West as the most professional, the best army, best training. They're the ones that are actually now retreating off the battlefield. And, you know, as the Kaiser said, you know, our guys are just not ready to stand up to tanks. He's he's asking that almost as a question to um, Ludendorff at one point. He's, he's puzzled by this idea. So it's it's always a tricky one. I'm, I'm, I'm at the tank museum. We're going to talk about tanks, aren't we? Did they really have that massive effect? It's really hard putting a balance on 1918. Did they make a difference? It's so interesting, I think, in so many of the German memoirs. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Petain saying, you know, we're going to wait for the Americans and the tanks. That idea that psychologically these things are making perhaps more of an impact Um, There's not that many there. They break down very quickly. Still, we know, you know, very quickly after a a day's action, you're very lucky if at the end of the day you've got half your tank force still available. But they are part of this psychological impact of what you might call the Allies material Superiority tactically in some areas they make a huge difference there's not enough to you know really swamp the battlefield the french are starting to come on with their ft tanks uh, but again still in small numbers the americans are just training august they leave bovington with their first heavy tank battalion ready that they've been training here at bovington um the french have been training with some ft tanks with the americans you know they're, they're they're not there in numbers we we can't claim the tank is swinging it but to underrate their psychological importance i think would also be a failure and that in so many of the memoirs that word about comes out at certain times about you know the impact uh, if you're a german soldier at the time and you know they they, they, there's lines as well it's not just a tank there, it's when they do capture some american prisoners um one of the german officers at the time he just looks at the equipment the american soldiers wearing the thickness of the leather on the american soldiers holster He just looks at that and he said, it's like a kick in the pants for our morale. These guys have got everything and it's the quality they're coming with. You know, the fact that these young farm boys, you know, well fed, everything else. When you've been a country at war, that has been quietly blockaded, starved, etc. So it's another one of those areas, you know, very hard to put on a graph. We can say how many tanks are available, but charting morale and charting what that impact has on different people is much, much harder, you know, and, and, and also it's just not true for a whole army. You know, you've got bits of the military that are still fighting superbly that have been very, very brave, being very sacrificial. You've got other bits of military on both sides that, you know, we've had enough. We've, um, you know, the French military as well is basically, uh, from its mutinies in 17, you know, that many areas they are still saying, look, we will defend, but we're not going to attack. Um, So that that impact across 1918, different times, we are seeing different elements of it. We're seeing new technologies still come in. It is a very mixed picture. But, uh, you know, for me at the moment, talking about tanks, tanks are there. They're almost a symbol of how the Western allies with its material advantage are being used to crush what is now exhausted German military.
0: Well, uh, I think it's also fascinating to talk about it and it's fascinating to listen to you. Uh, I certainly could uh, listen to it all day and um, currently also reading a bit about um, the uh, German side of it, some German sources. Um, There will be more about that on our show, of course. Um, As we said, much more details about tanks, tanks actually rolling in front of you at the Amiens event this summer. Um, David, thank you. Thanks a lot. Um, If you can't get enough of David and the... Tank Museum Bobbington actually has a YouTube channel where they have a format called Tank Chats, where you just examined the King Tiger. So um, you should, of course, also check that out. Um, I mean, you can never learn enough about tanks, can you? Um, I will put a link to that in the podcast description. Um, Again, David, thanks a lot for that. That was fascinating. And um, we will see each other this summer.
1: OK, well, thank you very much. Thank you to all your listeners. And we really do hope you try and make the effort. Come and meet the guys um, at the Ammion event, 8th and 9th of August here at the Tank Museum. Otherwise, say hello if you come at any other time. Do have a look at those YouTube ones as well. And well done with the series and um, well done for, I'd say, telling so many people about a war that is still so misunderstood by so many. So I'd like to think that by the end of this series, you guys will have educated an awful lot more people in uh, you know we won't know everything there's still things to find out but they're going to be able to to look at those stories with Pratchett and UI um, and you know and boy learning from our history is so important
0: yeah it absolutely is and if a few people actually you know do learn more about the war that's all we ever wanted to do when we started this so uh, thanks a lot David bye-bye bye-bye